for the past several weeks, and we've been looking at uh, different questions that Jesus asked of people that he encountered. We'll be doing so through most of uh, the summer. Well, Jesus is a one who is the answer to all of our problems. He also was a master of asking questions, as the scriptures record that he asked over 300 questions during his ministry on earth. This morning we're going to consider the question that he asked of a blind man named Bartimaeus that is found in Mark chapter 10, verses 46 through 52. You'll turn there with me. We consider the word. Mark 10. Hear the word of God. And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a, a blind beggar and son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, call him. And they called the blind man, saying to him, take heart, get up, he's calling you. And throwing off his cloak, he sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus said to him, what do you want me to do for you? And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed Jesus on the way. The word of our God. Let's pray. Holy God, we we do come with thanksgiving that we can gather and that you are here and that you have redeemed us and that you speak to us. And I pray now that you would give us eyes to see, to not only see the message of the text, the, the moral of the text, but to see ourselves clearly. And even more, that we would see the grace that you've given us in the person of Jesus. May we not only see, but give us hearts to receive the truths that are revealed that may be hard or difficult to swallow. But Lord, as we receive them, may you change us. May you let this word shape us until all of us reach full maturity in Christ. We pray boldly, audaciously, to ask that you would be at work. We do so confidently because it's you who has instructed us to do so. So, Lord, be at work within us now as we consider your word. We pray in Christ and for his glory. Amen. They'd been walking for for days. They were now heading toward Jerusalem for the Passover and for Jesus for the cross. They were passing through Jericho now as they entered this small city and as they went through the city, the crowds were uh, were large, maybe larger than normal because the Passover holiday was uh, soon to come, just a a couple of days away. The streets would have been crowded and, and loud. And as they passed through to the other end, there sat a man who sat in the same place every single day. 
man who was blind named Bartimaeus, son of Timaeus. We can picture him because we've all seen him. He is the guy who stands in the median by the traffic light or at the intersection holding the sign that says, disabled vet, homeless, will work for food. That's, that's Bartimaeus. And he's perched himself on the edge of the city near the gate so that he would guarantee high foot traffic, people passing him by that would hopefully give him the greatest possible gain as he asked passers-by throughout the day, every day, if they would give him some coins, if they would give him some spare change, if they would just give him something. He was a beggar. He was part of a class of people that the ancients referred to as the expendables. There he was sitting at the edge of the town. And he must have heard people talking. He must have heard somebody within the crowd saying, here comes Jesus. And he knew this name. Jesus was at the the height of his popularity. And so he he knew this name. He'd heard something of this guy. And, And so as Jesus passed by, he yells, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. The people hushed him. Jesus was an important person. Jesus was... Had a, 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 as many rabbis did, had a, a number of people following him, not just his disciples, but probably others who were there. And as they walked and talked and he taught, Jesus didn't have time for people like this, people who were insignificant, people who were outcasts. And so they told him to hush. His response to being hushed was to shout all the louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. He was almost obnoxious and probably maniacal and constantly just yelling, Son of of David, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped. And he looked at him. And he signaled to some in the crowd to bring him over, call him. And so they did. Now here is Bartimaeus, who really had very little expectation. We know that by the fact, or we we can assume that by the fact that we're told that when Jesus said to come, they told him, and then he got up. So he was just, he he remained seated, seated the whole time. So he was yelling, just like he did every day. The phrase, have mercy on me, is a phrase that he would use, and it was a common beggar's phrase. It was the, 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 the phrase that he would yell throughout the day, every day. This time he directly addressed Jesus simply because he'd heard the guy's name. He'd heard he was a man of God. He'd heard he was a prophet. He'd heard that he was probably from the line of David. He'd heard he might even be the Messiah. And so with no expectation but figuring he's got a, a better target, he yells out to him. And even while he's yelling maniacally, he's remained seated as he always did. He's throwing his lying into the water, but he's not really expecting a bite. Until now, Jesus calls for him, and he's standing face to face. And I imagine that there was an awkward silence as the two were standing there, breaking social distance practices. Until Jesus finally breaks the silence and says, what would you like for me to do for you? What an amazing question. It's a very familiar Bible passage, so 
those of you who are here, most of you have been students of the Bible at some time or another. You've probably heard the story, even, you know, taught it in, by VBS or learned it in VBS. But have you ever thought about what an incredible question Jesus is asking here? What do you want me to do for you? It's incredible, not just because of the obvious reason, like, what do you mean, what do you want me to do for you? I'm, I'm blind. I mean, you know, why doesn't Jesus just fix it? Why does he bother asking? It's said that sometimes questions tell us more than answers ever do, and I believe that in this case, it is certainly true. This is an amazing question because it is a question that embedded in it is wisdom for us. John Calvin, in the early part of his Institutes, makes this observation. Nearly all wisdom which we possess, that is to say, true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts, the knowledge of God and knowledge of ourselves. And this is an amazing question because embedded in this question is knowledge of God, an invitation to know ourselves. Jesus asked the question, What do you want me to do for you? And this question tells us something about God. Jesus is God who has come in the flesh. He's the exact image of the Father who is in heaven. Jesus had said to, in response to questions or people requesting uh, to, to show them the Father, and he said, look, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you want to know what God is like, just watch me. Listen to me. If you know me, you know the Father. You know exactly what the Father is like. And then here he is, God in the flesh, talking with this man who is an outcast of society, expendable and unworthy in every way, according to the world's standards. And he says to this man, how can I help you? Which is the essence of the question. How can I help you? That's a question you expect to hear when you pull to the drive-thru at McDonald's or Taco Bell or Chick-fil-A. How can I help you? That's the question you expect when you maybe check into a you know, better hotel and you go to the desk and the clerk sees you and welcomes you and asks, how can I help you? That's the question that the Cox Cable Company service department asks whenever I call, but I never believe them. And here's God asking not some great religious or political or powerful person, but a man who is insignificant in every way. How can I help you? Our God is different. He is different than the God of the nations who require that we perform or measure up in some way. He's different than the gods of the Greek mythologies that still would have had some remnant in the culture of the day that Jesus was living. The gods who were so ridiculous and always using humans in order to get something that they wanted. Our God has come in the flesh and asks, what do you want me to do for you? How can I help you? If you back up just one verse before the passage that we read, Jesus, as he's walking with his disciples and answering uh, their questions as well, 
he gives clear his mission. And in the clarity of his mission, we also see the character and the nature of God. In, in verse 45 of, of Mark 10, Jesus says this. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And what Jesus is talking about is, is the cross, although they didn't understand that. They would a week later. That he came to serve, and the ultimate way in which he was to serve was to lay his life down. His life was the payment of the ransom that is holding us hostage whether to Satan as the enemy or to slave three, to sin itself. Jesus is paying the ransom with his own life. That's the ultimate way in which he has come to serve. But he's making it clear. God in the flesh, the nature of God who walked among us, his nature, although being powerful, creator, and glorious, he comes and says, how can I help you? Our God has come to serve us. Only a week later, Peter would come to understand that lesson in a more personal way. Well, Jesus got on his hands and knees and began washing the feet of his disciples. Peter objected, recognizing Jesus is greater. How can he serve like this? But when he objected, Jesus says, Peter, if you do not let me wash your feet... If you do not let me serve you, you can have no part of me. We read this question, we hear this question, and it tells us something of our God. Our God, great and glorious, also serves and serves his people. And you and I, like Peter and like Bartimaeus, need to recognize that the first step the first aspect of our relationship with God is to let him serve us. And we never grow past it. Our relationship with God is not based on what we do for him. It is based on what he does and is doing for us and in us. Our God serves. He delights to serve because he delights to give good gifts his children and so we hear this question what would you like for me to do for you and we begin to see God in a different light or in a clearer light different perhaps than we are inclined to think different than religion dictates but God in the flesh revealing the full nature of God is asking not only Bartimaeus but he's asking you and he's asking me what would you like for me to do for you how can I help? But we gain wisdom not only because we're able to know a little bit more about God. We know the nature of God. We know the character of God. We know that in order to relate to God, we must let him serve us before we are able to serve him by serving others. But we gain wisdom because it's an invitation for us to gain knowledge about ourselves. It's an invitation that we might grow in insight about our own hearts and our own lives and our own needs and our own desires. What would you like for me to do for you? You ever wondered why Jesus asked that question? 
I mean, beyond the obvious is he already knew the man was blind, and this was his, his great physical need, and he was helpless, and he was trapped in this cycle of his own brokenness where he had no hope for anything beyond just getting enough to be able to get the next meal, hopefully get enough to be able to get up the next morning and then come back to the same spot and get enough to be able to do the same thing over and over again. He had no vision for life. He had no goals. He had no aspirations. He had no plan for making his life better because he had no hope for it. This was his lot as he had accepted this, and so he just lived in this vicious cycle. Certainly Jesus understood that. Jesus asking because he wanted to know more about the guy and you know, as, as if he was lacking information. I think about the questions that God asked about the scriptures and I, I automatically go back to the question that God asked our first parents, Adam and Eve, after they fell. And while they were hiding, God says, where are you? Is God asking because he really didn't know? I mean, are they playing hide and seek and he's giving up? Oh, come on out. And the answer is, of course not. God knew exactly where they were. The reason he asked that question of our first parents is not because he didn't know, but he wanted them to know. He wanted them to ask themselves, where am I? What am I doing? Why am I doing this? He asked the question so that they would be aware of themselves. And many of the questions that Jesus asked, and this one very definitely, the question is asked not so that Jesus would gain knowledge, as if he needed the information. He's asking the question because the hearer needs the affirmation. By asking the question, he's inviting them to engage him. He's saying, you matter to me. But he's also asking them to ask the question of themselves so that they have the information about themselves that they need. Information that he understands. But information that sometimes we are so prone to overlook about ourselves. What would you like for me to do for you? It begins with the, really these two questions embedded to that. What, what, would you, what do you want? And then what do you want me to do about that? Or will you let me do something about that? And Jesus is asking this question of Bartimaeus because he wants Bartimaeus to know himself. He asks this question of us because he wants us to know ourselves. I ran across a, a, a great quote this week. By, it was by James Ryan, who apparently is president of UVA. And he's also an author, and he wrote a book that's titled Wait What? and Other Essential Life Questions. Listen to what he says about questions. Questions are like keys. The right question asked at the right time opens the door to something, something you haven't yet realized or something you haven't even considered about others or even about yourself. And I love the imagery that he puts there. Questions are like keys, and most of us have experienced that. If you have a good friend or if you've ever been to a, a good counselor and they ask this question, and just for whatever reason, it strikes you and it opens you up to be able to see things that you were not seeing before or to honestly accept things that perhaps you were stuffing or denying within yourself or within others. I've certainly had that experience with good friends who know me well enough to, you know, get past the surface, how are you doing, and I tell them everything is fine and they give them some details and then they say, all right, now cut the baloney. And they ask questions. And those questions asked with love 
require that I then honestly take those questions seriously. And then I'm able to have a, a, an entirely new perspective. And so one of the key questions we need to walk away with today is if Jesus is asking, what do you want me to do for you? What is the key of his questioning opening in you? What is it you really want? What is the great desire that you have? What is the great need in your life? Because in order to answer the question, we need to know. Now, some think that the essence of Christianity is not living out pursuing our desires, but somehow ignoring our desires, forsaking our desires, and going and do something noble. But if that's the essence of Christianity, then it really becomes an issue of our work, and we merit something by our denying of our desires. And further, I think it's John Piper who points out that if pursuing desires is wrong, then it must be wrong for God who speaks to us and offers things that would tantalize us that we would desire, whether it's heaven or or other promises that he makes. If it's wrong for us to have desires, then it's wrong for him to dangle that carrot that would make us pursue the desires. The reality is our desires, the fact that we have desire is not wrong. The question is, what is it that we do desire? And is that desire worthy? So that's a question certainly that Bartimaeus had to deal with. What do you want me to do for you? Well, moments before, all he wanted was some change or maybe a a clean blanket. He wasn't expecting much. He said the same thing that he would say to everybody who passes by, thinking he has an easy mark, have mercy on me, give me your change out of your pocket. Now he's standing face to face with God. He can't see him, but there must have been something about the presence of Jesus that began to be at work within this guy, just standing there with him. He moved from one who was willing to continue in the cycle of his life and now was able to answer the question with really an audacious, audacious request. I want to have my sight restored. I want to see. He could have asked for the change. He could have asked for something else, something very minimal and sold out rather than going for the greatest need that he had, which is in response to his own brokenness. Every one of us needs to look inside. C.S. Lewis points out the problem is not whether we pursue desires. We do all pursue our desires. The problem is most of us sell out so cheaply. And he gives examples such as, you know, you know, we, we, people pursue sex as opposed to the relationship of a marriage. People pursue all sorts of things that bring momentary pleasure and at the expense of something greater. It's like knowing that you're going to get to go to a top-notch steak dinner, but on the way you eat some beef jerky. And you just, it just is not the same. You've exchanged something great for something nothing. And so when Jesus asked that question, what do you want for me to do for you? We need to ask, what do I want? Now, it's also important to recognize we don't always get the answer correctly the first time. If you were to go back into the story right before this scene, James and John said 
Jesus, we want you to do whatever it is we ask for you. And Jesus asked the same question that he asked for Bartimaeus. What is it that you would like for me to do for you? And they said, when you come into your kingdom, we want to be on your right and your left. In other words, we want to be co-regents. We want to be, you know, chief of staff and vice president or chief of staff, speaker of the house, whatever the positions would be of the most power. And Jesus doesn't scold them. He steps back and he just says, look, you don't know what you're asking. Those positions are not for me to give. Those are not there. Because the position on his right and left when he came into his kingdom were reserved for two thieves. And what he was telling them is, look, you're asking this question. You don't understand. It's not that it's a, you know, the ambition itself is bad. It's just you're not asking the right things. So we don't need to fear making sure that we get it right, but Jesus is inviting us into a conversation. He's inviting us into a process with him. This is the way Jesus sanctifies. This is the way God is at work. He who began a good work in you is continuing it and will continue it until he completes it to the end. But different than when we come to faith in Christ, which we are dead in our sin and God makes us alive, totally a work of God, for those of you who like theological words called monergism, sanctification, our growth in grace is synergistic. We work with the grace of God. And Jesus then is bringing awareness of ourselves, of our brokenness and of our need, so that we then turn to him, repentance for where there is sin, and power where we are impotent, so that he who is at work within us will be at work. We, knowing ourselves, is the way that we grow. And in that, we're going to have many, many wrong or inadequate requests of God. But Jesus is at work in this process to make us whole. And that process is by continually answering this question, what do you want? Taking that to God and seeing that he is the one who can meet your need. He is the one who can be at work within you. And then the second part of that is, what do you want me to do for you? In other words, we must be prepared to let God work to take the gospel as a scalpel into our heart and cut out all of those things that lead to deadness and to sin and to leave us whole as he heals us. And it's a process. Let me illustrate it this way, the way that God works in us. My daughter is home, and while I am delighted for that, it's also a concern. My daughter is a fashion Nazi. And she and my wife as a co-conspirator have eyes for my closet and my dresser drawers. They don't want my closet space. They don't want my dresser drawers. They just want a lot of stuff that's in them out of there. My daughter seems to think I have lousy fashion taste. That's why we sent her away to college. No, um, that's right. So, William and Mary, no, uh, that's too day now. Now imagine for a moment that I decide to, depending on your perspective, become wise and let them work or hold my course, but let them do, do something. And so imagine that we decide we're going to embrace this, with certain, uh, this uh, Marie Kondo, who is kind of the, the downsizing expert, a Japanese lady that kind of goes through. And her process of downsizing wardrobes and, and, uh, and uh, houses is this. She tells the people that are her clients to take everything out of the closet, everything out of the drawer, and lay everything out on the floor. Now, take every individual piece of clothing and pick it up, 
And if it brings you joy, you keep it. And if it doesn't automatically bring a feeling of joy, well then, discard it. It's a very simple, simple process. Well, when Jesus says, what would you like for me to do for you? And we tell him what we believe are the desires of our heart, what we believe is our need. In the earliest stages, it's kind of like coming, that's just lay everything out there. And then Jesus with us says, okay, does this bring you joy? Will this lead to joy? Well, if you think so, then keep it. Will this lead to joy? If it's not going to lead to joy, if it's going to rob you of joy, well, then get rid of it. And it's a very simple process at the beginning. But as we walk with Jesus, as we go through this process multiple times, then it would be like this. What if instead of lifting things up and I ask the question, does this bring me joy? What if I allowed my fashion Nazi daughter and her co-conspirator to answer the questions of my stuff? Does this bring you joy? No. I'm going to be left with very little, but on the other hand, what I'm left with will apparently be nice, fashionable, and slick, and cool, and acceptable to be seen in public with them. And it's the same process that Jesus uses in sanctifying us. What do you want me to do for you requires that we ask ourselves, what do we want? What is our desire? Where do we see that we have need? But after a series of times answering that question, realizing, okay, well, I kind of minimize this. Or that's really not my greatest need. It's really not addressing where I'm really broken. Over time, Jesus transforms. Paul says in Philippians that it's the Lord who works in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. In other words, the Holy Spirit who's within us is at work within us. As we die to sin, we end up able to see more clearly. And the more clearly we're able to see the stuff and the junk that's in our life, the more able we're able to see our own brokenness, then the more clear we're going to be able, the more wise we're going to be when we're answering the question, what would you like for me to do for you? Because we're coming to Jesus with our brokenness and things that we cannot fix on our own. And we're recognizing that Jesus is the only one who is able to take that and answer that and make us whole. Now, ultimately, what if we were to say, not my wife, but look at our lives. And Jesus says, what do you want from me? And we do this, this Marie Kondo approach to things and saying, you know what, Jesus, you decide. What will bring you the most joy and the most pleasure? And when we have that mindset, that's when we recognize that we are free and that we are walking in maturity and in wisdom. But it begins with Jesus saying, how can I help you? And making that question shine a light on our own attitude, our own desires, and hopefully exposing the reality of our own brokenness. In many ways, we are like Bartimaeus. We are all blind in some respect. We're blind to many of the areas in which we are broken and in which we have need. One way in which most of us are not like Bartimaeus is this, is he knew he was blind and most of us are blind to our own blindness. Few of us are ever going to experience the radical and the immediate transformation that Bartimaeus did that day, blind one moment and able to see the next. But the same one who did the work in him is the one who has begun a work in us and has promised to see it through until the end, until we are whole. And we don't know much about Bartimaeus after this incident. Bible scholars, many believe that he became a leader in the Jerusalem church, an elder in that church. They base that on the fact that Bartimaeus is one of the few that are named 
in Mark's gospel. And they rationalize that the reason for him being named is that the the people for whom Mark wrote this gospel, they would have recognized that name. It would have caught their attention. They would have been interested in his story, and that would certainly be true if he did become a leader in the church in Jerusalem. But what's more important is this. Whether Bartimaeus ever became a spiritual leader in the church or not, God is glorified in his life because of the work that God did in his heart after he dealt with his brokenness. God is glorified through Bartimaeus because God was at work in Bartimaeus. And that is true for you and for me. Jesus asks the question for us to answer. What do you want me to do for you? How can I help you today? And we engage in that. And we may never do anything spectacular other than what we see the text saying about Bartimaeus. We follow Jesus. And he is at work within us. And the evidence of him being at work within us is glorifying to God. God is making us whole. May he grant us insight to our need to answer that question with wisdom. May he grant us the ability to be transparent, to own our brokenness so that we can take it to him and be made whole. May he who began a good work in us continue it until not only are we each made whole, but all of us reach full maturity in Christ Jesus. Father, be at work, we pray. We thank you for this word, for the reflection of your nature and of the way you work. Help us to see what we cannot see on our own, that we may give it to you. May you bring beauty out of ashes. May you bring transformation. May you sanctify us through and through, that we may rejoice in being set free and being healed. The praise and the glory of your grace and power, we pray through Christ and in him. Amen.